What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is me, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, with the first podcast of the new year. I hope you had a great holiday. I hope those of you who were living in the electricity markets that blacked out still had a safe time. And today we are going to talk about ESG, something that I understand only dimly with Julius Krein, the editor of American Affairs, who just published a piece in Compact Magazine titled, Why the Right Can't Beat ESG. Julius, what is up? Um, I'm good. How are you? It's a great pleasure to be here, especially as hopefully a number of listeners know, you've written a number of excellent articles for American Affairs and have another one coming up in the February issue. Yep, that's right. Thank you, by the way. Yeah, uh, I've written three, one on nuclear, one on the grid, and then this third one on Enron. So I appreciate Julius letting me like Russian, Russian nesting doll my way into like a trilogy for him because each article came out of the the one before it. So All right. I know you a little bit. I know that you have a background in finance. What, dude, what is ESG? Like, what is this thing? How would you explain it to somebody like me who has never even been on a trading floor or anything like that ever? Well, even the definition itself is somewhat contested on its own terms. ESG is a risk management framework. The letters stand for environmental, social, and governance. And it's, again, by its own definition, a framework for apprehending those risks in those areas and incorporating them into corporate governance to help companies manage to you know, increase shareholder value while taking account of these sort of macro and in some ways political risk factors. Now, of course, ESG is in the news most of the time, not as a simple risk management framework. And critics would say it's a surreptitious effort to basically turn companies into political activists. And in a way, it's, it's, it can operate as both of those things. But fundamentally, the way it works is by highlighting risks to shareholder value from the E, the S, and the G, and then building criteria and incorporating that into institutional investment fund fund management decisions, as well as public company corporate management decisions. Okay. So let me sort of put it into some dumb guy ease. Like if you're you're trying to make sure that your portfolio doesn't get injured by any, I don't know, huge environmental lawsuits or by, let's say, the state deciding it's going to quickly depart from fossil fuels or something like that. And so it doesn't hurt your pocketbook. And ESG is about sort of like bundling things that you can invest in that will be immune from that. Yeah, maybe in a kind of functional terminology, most people are familiar probably with credit ratings. So mm-hmm. the S&P fi- or the S&P goes out and evaluates companies based on their debt profile, uh, the maturity profile, the coverage ratios and leverage ratios. That is sort of, you know, the ratio of interest expense to company cash flow, that sort of thing. And they assign them a rating, AAA being the best, triple B minus being the last investment grade rating, things below that being considered high yield or junk. And then you get down into 
you know, the C's and D's, which are in default or close to, you know, expected to default. ESG is a way to kind of do that for how is the company managing environmental risks or governance risks and various, um, various entities, including some of, you know, some of the same ones that do regular financial risks, you know, publish ratings and criteria on how these companies are doing. And certain funds will, there's kind of multiple ways this plays into actual finance. Some funds will sort of invest based on these ESG criteria. Other funds will simply invest in any asset class, but then incorporate ESG criteria into how they vote their shares or how they impact corporate governance decision within that company they're investing in. So how, what are, so what are the impacts of ESG? Because one of the things you talk about in the piece, and I know you and I have talked about this privately, where there are people that say like, oh, you know, like that's part of what's keeping anybody from drilling right now. But I'm not convinced that that's actually what's going on there. I think that there are other effects that ESG is having, and that's not necessarily one. So like, what is it? That's a very broad question. I guess, what impact is it having on the on, on energy and like in, in the markets, do you think? Well, I mean, let's, let's take the drilling example, fossil fuel drilling example. You know, there are certainly cases where, you know, People with a business, it doesn't, they don't even necessarily need to be an oil driller per se, mm-hmm. but will often to get investment funding or bank lending, will have to go through an ESG kind of criteria check. And they will get, you know, questions like, does this involve coal mm-hmm. mining or stuff like that? Tends to be very binary. General, from what I've heard, it's mostly a nuisance. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the case that um, funds with ESG most of the time are, are not investing in fossil fuel production. BlackRock, they all have dedicated energy funds where you know mm-hmm. you can go and buy the BlackRock oil fund or whatever they call it. The main lenders to the oil and gas sector, there was just a story about this the other day, JP Morgan, Bank of America they all have ESG programs and they're still the, the leading lenders to the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are likely impacts on the margin, but the sort of claims that ESG is preventing investment into oil and gas, there, there's just nothing to really substantiate that. Those, the, those mostly exaggerated. Um, mm-hmm. the, and, and it's a problem because a lot of some of the criticism of ESG kind of is based on on a lot of this stuff, you know, there's a kind of antitrust line of argument that the fund managers by using ESG are sort of colluding to prevent certain investments. Um, mm-hmm. it, that's very hard to prove when, again, you have the BlackRock Energy Fund out there. And in fact, oil and gas companies themselves have issued about $30 billion of ESG bonds. So it's it definitely has an impact in the so far as companies are having to go through these questionnaires, you know, there's different reporting burdens and that sort of thing that are associated with it. I Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that it hasn't had a kind of impact to the overall aura or zeitgeist. That's true. Yeah. But it it's, you know, it is not at this time. I I think the, the case that it's sort of preventing oil and gas investing is very thin. Um, mm-hmm. What has been, and this has been widely popular, popularized, I'm not saying anything 
new here, but since the oil crash in 2015, you had a lot of oil companies um, debt either get equitized in various restructurings, or you had a, an influx of private equity capital, or just conventional shareholders have taken a different tack mm-hmm. in that they're less interested in drilling at you know cash flow negative drilling, and mm-hmm. they want to prefer you know cash distributions over actual drilling, which I think is the main reason that you see, you know, kind of the rig count today, even at relatively high oil prices compared to, you know, previous years being much, much lower. And, and you know, it's the combination of 2015 and the big COVID crash yeah. when oil actually went negative that shifted a lot of these financial incentive incentives. ESG may play a kind of minor sort of emotional role in that, but it's actual mm-hmm. financial impact. I, there, there's not much evidence that that's actually playing a huge role there. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I agree with that. I think, you know, there are a few things going on. I think, you know, a lot of the tier one reservoirs are tapped. I think, you know, there's a human capital problem, especially after COVID, a lot of people left the industry. So, you know, there's, there's a variety of things going on. And it doesn't help that one political party keeps saying they're going to end the entire industry. I don't really know anybody who wants to put a ton of capital to expand an industry that is like under threat like that. You know, just because it is essential doesn't mean it'll get treated that way. Seems to be some of the the feeling. That aside, does ESG benefit things like wind and solar and batteries and all of that? It's certainly you know a a wind wind power generation facility or you know wind field or solar field. Mm-hmm. Those will those will score. Those will have very high ESG scores, and that will make it easier for you know attracting ESG investment, which is a considerable mm-hmm. dollar amount. But you probably know better at, better than I, kind of you know how the investment trends in these sectors are going. And I think you could probably posit ESG as one factor in supporting mm-hmm. a kind of clean energy investment. But it, it's not, it's very hard to make the case that, you know, it's the dominant factor and certainly not the, the only one. And I think if you compare it on kind of the venture capital side, I was looking at these the other day in the kind of 2010s in the Obama administration, when the US government really ramped up a lot of Department of Energy loans uh, mm-hmm. to clean tech projects most of which didn't go very well, though you did end up with getting Tesla out of it. You saw a much larger shift in venture capital allocations around that. I mean, you know, venture capital basically flowed into it with the government money. And as the mm-hmm. government money disappeared, the, the private VC disappeared too. So that actually seems to, you know, have a much more direct impact on private capital flows than kind of nebulous ESG criteria do. But, you know, I wouldn't say that it's zero. You've also seen it play a factor in certain activist campaigns. There was a very famous example with this small activist fund called Engine Number One, uh, mm-hmm. which pushed ExxonMobil into various changes around, you know, pursuing a clean energy future. And, and BlackRock voted with en- Engine Number One, and they won. So you see it on, on on things like that. Right. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, it seems like. It seems like it's something that's easy to beat up on because it seems to be doing a lot of like virtue signaling weight. And that's where the debate has been anchored in. But your article provides sort of like a history of how we even got to something like ESG. So what has changed in 
the ideas of investing and what shareholders role is and who manages capital, you know, you have a a nice little succinct sort of almost like genealogy of how we arrive at something like ESG. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. And before I do that, I I also just want to add the article is not a ringing endorsement of ESG in any way. I think some of the critics of ESG have gotten a little beyond the facts in in mm-hmm. arguing against it, but on the whole, my I am I'm not exactly friendly to ESG as as presently constructed. I'm primarily offering another alternative to fixing it and and modifying it, not mm-hmm. endorsing you know the present iteration of it. But with that said, the history. You had a couple of different themes coming together. The first one, and the reason why everyone is arguing about BlackRock today, as opposed to company management XYZ, mm-hmm. is because you had a very clear policy impulse in the 1980s to give more power to shareholders mm-hmm. over corporate management. And one of these changes, which is particularly relevant for ESG, was actually undertaken and driven by a guy named Robert Monks, who eventually became under Reagan, the head head of the Office of Welfare Benefit Programs at the Department of Labor. And he worked to shift the way the way institutional investment funds vote their shares. So before that, and I'm, I'm simplifying a mm-hmm. bit here, but in general, you know, you owned a mutual fund, you as the underlying beneficial owner or whatever, you would vote, you would vote the shares that you, when the company had a board election or a proxy vote. After Monks and those changes, essentially the institutional investment fund would be in charge of voting the shares. And this was particularly true for pension funds and that sort of thing. So what this did is it gave, it, it meant that when you had contests between activist shareholders and company management. Um, it, now those activist shareholders basically only had to go and make their case to a relatively small group of mm-hmm. institutional asset managers who, by virtue of being you know, institutional asset managers, tend to be fairly sophisticated and engaged in you know, financial management. You know, having to go organize a big dispersed group of retail shareholders, many of whom aren't paying any attention to, mm-hmm. you know, the companies that they own, a very difficult task making, you know, activist challenges to company management that much harder. Now you had a much smaller group that was more likely, more e- easier to organize, mm-hmm. making it so that company management now had to be much more responsive uh, to the shareholders, or they would, you know, swiftly find themselves losing an activist challenge. You actually see these phenomena, you know, the Trump SPAC, if you mm-hmm. followed it, Digital World Acquisition Corps, they've run into this issue because their shareholder base is pretty much all retail. Uh, and so they've had to try to push through various reforms on the deadline of the Trump like media acquisition deal because uh, you know there really isn't a deal. So they've had to like <laughs> right. push through delays and stuff. And they've had a hard time doing it because the retail shareholders don't end up voting in the election. So you know this stuff still happens today. That's why in the '80s they wanted to give more power to the you know. BlackRock, I don't think existed at that time, but you know the institutional fund managers and the other right. change that you got out of that um, is a lot of the, some of these, you know, the effort was really to empower sort of the activists and that kind of shareholder against management. But around this time, you also had a lot, you know, the beginning of real passive investment vehicles, 
the beginning of kind of purely quantitative strategy, hedge funds, that sort of thing, who didn't really care at all about any single company's performance. Uh, and Robert Monks understood this very well, which is why as soon as he changed the rule, he left the government to start a firm called Institutional Shareholder Services or ISS, which is now the leading and one of a small number of proxy advisors that essentially advise funds on how to vote their shares, which is, you know, the activists don't necessarily need that, but, you know, BlackRock and others will rely on the guidance of, of ISS or Glass-Lewis or one of these firms. But from the perspective of ESG, this is relevant just because you, um, in addition to the activist management dynamic, you now had a huge shareholder base that wasn't really that engaged with specific company decisions, specific company performance, and was eager to sort of outsource this to third parties. So it's within this framework, we had a shift from a fairly independent, imperious management team, which, you know, the criticism, the criticisms were certainly not all wrong, was basically operating, you know, with little regard to the shareholders doing what, what they wanted to, you know, mm -hmm. increase their headcount, make the company more prestigious. In the Gordon Gecko speech from the movie Wall Street, he goes through all their hunting trips and all mm -hmm. this stuff that they're doing, ignoring the shareholders. But you shift from that to today's style of management, which is essentially not, you know, most management is very shareholder driven. Their compensation is based on share price performance. If they step out of line, even a little bit, an activist will come in and, and force them to make changes, force out the management team, force a sale of the company, that sort of thing. And you also see a lot, the activists doing this all the time have a lot of reason to be in touch with the ISSs of the world and the Black Rocks of the world, which most company management teams don't necessarily have that regular interaction. So there's actually kind of a, one could argue a somewhat unlevel playing field, or at least the kind of anti-shareholder activist types make that argument. But getting back to ESG, when you have an environment like this, all of a sudden, a lot more of corporate management needs to be sort of rigidly systematized because they need to be constantly justifying what they're doing to the shareholders. And ESG, again, arises as a sort of risk management framework to systematically or systematize precisely these considerations. And it give, you know, management team, you know, cover if you want to look at it somewhat cynically or just, you know, a, a clear framework that shows that they're not simply operating at, you know, their own discretion, but they're following, you know, financial market guidance, so to speak. And at the same time, these passive investors, index funds, and so on, they don't necessarily care very much about what one company is doing, but they do care about what the entire market is doing, what's called beta in, in financial jargon. And so they have a lot of incentive to kind of push macro considerations into company management. And so it's not surprising that you also see the rise of ESG kind of very closely parallel the rise in, in the AUM of assets under management of index funds and other, other passive funds. Okay. So it seems like there was a problem that some people felt needed to be solved, which was that, that management wasn't you know, responsive or responsible to shareholders enough. And that one way to solve that was to sort of create this sort of like management entity that could advocate on behalf allegedly on behalf of shareholders rather than trying to do like the goat rodeo of all of that. But at the same time, you sort of get this, as you said, like highly quantitative, not really interested in like the brass tacks of a company 
style of indexing and investing that happens at the same time. And these things sort of blur together and produce things like ESG, which is meant to explain to shareholders what the company is doing, why and how it's protecting them. Yes. And I, I don't want to say that ESG isn't politicized now. Um, and to mm-hmm. some degree, it was always politicized because even though it was basically large financial institutions that came up with this, there's always been a sort of self-selecting dynamic that the people who are interested in ESG tend to be on the sort of left liberal side of the political mm-hmm. spectrum. So mm-hmm. it's perhaps no surprise that the you know the criteria they came up with fell very narrowly along sort of left liberal priorities and as i kind of go over in the piece conservatives throughout the early decade you know the first decade and a half or so of esg were basically mia they weren't paying attention they didn't mm-hmm. notice it and you know to a degree insofar as all they really care about is shareholder primacy they had no real reason to pay attention to it because it it wasn't contradicting that but <clears throat> ESG certainly, you know, it prioritize. It's not that environmental issues are are not real things or whatever, but right. certainly emphasizing that that's you know that that puts you on the sort of left liberal side, mm-hmm. and there's material risks to say significant disruptions in energy supply, et cetera, et cetera. And, or certainly if you take a thing like nuclear, which is you know very good from an emissions perspective but not uh, in the United States, in Europe, slightly different story, but in the United States, nuclear, at least until very recently, or, you know, I think for the most part is still excluded from most ESG uh, criteria that reflects, you know, a sort of subconscious, if not very conscious political choice, which is, you know, because again, the way ESG works is it doesn't say, I'm going to take your company and turn it into a political philanthropy or, you know, activist institution. It just says, these are material risks to your profits and your shareholders that arise out of sort of macro and political concerns, and you need to be aware of it. And so the politicization just comes into sort of which, which material risk factors you prioritize and things like that. And from the early days, you know, that prioritization has fallen along a sort of left liberal line. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've seen stuff, obviously, I think you can just go onto the major environmental nonprofits, which are I mean, all the most powerful ones in America are anti-nuclear. And I think a lot of them have things advocating for ESG and how it's good and this, that, and the other. So I think that 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 holds, I think, you know, yeah, ideological assumptions get embedded in whatever this technical thing is. You know, I don't really know that there's a way around that. So it seems like what I'm hearing from you is that the response to say like, hey, that's not fair. We're supposed to be like value neutral or whatever on this way sort of misunderstands how the entire thing works anyway. You can really only pick between different types of ideological assumptions embedded in this. You can't ask for complete neutral playing field. That's right. I think a lot of the criticism of ESG at this point tends to assume falsely that it's it's not based on shareholder primacy. It tends to assume that actually ESG people are saying, you know, Exxon, you need to become an environmental nonprofit now. Mm-hmm. That's not what, actually what they're saying. They're saying, yes, by all means, pursue shareholder value. But the best way to pursue shareholder value is to take account, you know, these environmental and other risks. 
And so the only way to really combat that is not to go out and say, we need more shareholder primacy because ESG already accepts shareholder primacy. The way to combat that is you have to substantively represent the other material risks that the current frameworks are ignoring. Um, hmm. You know, for example, energy security risk, national security risk, non-college educated workforce enhancement. I, I list a bunch in the article, uh, mm -hmm. you know, offshoring and, and supply chain security, all of that stuff. That's the only way to effectively combat it, in my opinion. The other option is to basically have the government go in and say, companies, you are not allowed to take into account environmental risk, which I think is, you know, a non-starter for two reasons. One, because if you're pursuing this under libertarian grounds, it's very hard to justify that mm -hmm. level of government involvement in corporate decision-making. And two, mm -hmm. because you just, at the end of the day, like governance is a real thing. And, you know, even environmental risks are real things and you yeah. can't really plausibly exclude that without, you know, really screwing up companies. And that's why a lot of these anti es SG funds are kind of going out and sort of saying, we, we don't penalize bad companies. Well, you know, that's not really a plausible corporate governance framework to take. I mean, do you really want to invest in a company with bad governance? No. Even if all you care about is profits, you don't want to do that. Even if it's scare quotes bad, like Even there might be scare something, quotes bad. Right. Um, something hidden in there. I mean, I think that that's interesting, right? Because it's, yeah, it would also be like, I'm only investing in companies that are like directly circumventing everything the EPA does. And it's like, well, how long do you think that's going to last? Like right. you're sort of betting against the house. You know, and you could say like, oh, well, the EPA should be doing this, that and the other instead of what it's doing. It's like, OK, well, that's a political problem that would need to be solved by political means, not something that you can skirt around by having your boutique anti ESG fund. And at the end of the day, everybody knows that all of these all of the impulses behind this are political anyway. Right. You can pretend that all you really care about is profits over politics, but it's very clear that you're primarily motivated by politics, which is fine. That doesn't make it wrong or bad, mm -hmm. but it does mean that if you try to justify it in this purely neutral way, you're going to end up tying yourself in knots and becoming totally ineffective. Whereas if you simply set out to say, you know, current risk management and ESG risk management framework frameworks fail to include the material risks arising from, you know, the concerns that I care about, right. you could very likely influence corporate decision-making around those issues, mobilize capital behind those issues. And even if your ultimate goal is quote unquote neutrality, you'd, I would say you'd be much better off getting there by actually, you know, providing these two alternatives that are fundamentally irreconcilable. And that would force people to sort of, you know, call a truce or have to take it off the table because there's no way to to solve each one. But mm -hmm. in reality, I think the point of the piece is essentially just that, that the only way to deal with the current problems of ESG is actually to come up with constructive alternative risk management frameworks, for lack of a better word, that incorporate a larger universe of concerns. Mm -hmm. well, what would you say to somebody like, this is something that an economist friend sort of put it to me about ESG, where he was like, well, you know, like, these are just investors chasing government subsidy. Like it's all just rent seeking. And so choosing between, like if you if you had like a better version of this, it's just sort of like different types of rent seeking slash industrial policy or whatever. Like what's your response to that? 
perspective on this, that like we should just be going after these subsidies rather than doing these downstream things with ESG? Well, I, there are two things. The first one is there's a weird, I just finished reviewing another book that kind of went through this and that, you know, all government programs are essentially just rent seeking and lobbyists influenced, mm-hmm. which of course they are, but there's a fundamental problem or, you know, a kind of what one might call a contradiction. If you mm-hmm. wanted to be cheeky of the sort of libertarian position, that sort of all corporate lobbying is bad. I mean, how do you expect companies not to lobby? Like what world, what utopian world are you living in where there's no rent seeking? And sort of mm-hmm. if, if, you know, the, the ideology itself encourages and actually makes it harder to resist this. I mean, it's the libertarians who are celebrating Supreme court decisions that allow more corporate money in politics. Um, mm-hmm. As, as one actual Fortune 500 executive once said to me, I have a duty to my shareholders to lobby, right, yeah, which was okay. kind of a joke, but it's like how, in what world are companies not going to lobby? So if your system is so fragile that you, you know, the slightest bit of lobbying ends up destroying the utopia, then, then maybe it's just a utopia to begin with. I think you have to recognize that you know, men are not angels and angels don't govern men. And there's going to be lobbying and rent seeking inherently. And you can combat that in some ways by proceduralism, but ultimately it's combated by countervailing power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second thing I would say with respect to ESG in particular, and not just libertarianism generally, is, you know, to date, the governments haven't really been involved in this at all. There are at present, you know, debates around what SEC requiring companies to disclose mm-hmm. emissions risk and things like that. But ESG is an asset class that, you know, in the United States, there's no government sitting around defining ESG. Governments are not, you know, allocating subsidies according to ESG. Um, mm-hmm. This is an entirely private sector driven phenomenon. The ESG rating agencies are private, the banks, financial institutions, investors, though that's private capital. Now, in some cases, of course, you have state pensions and others investing in ESG funds and that sort of thing too, but they're simply doing so as, as market actors. They're not setting, they're not defining ESG. The Europeans have very recently defined sort of what ESG can include and can include and put, put some rules around that. But in the US, it's, it's an entirely private sector phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you know, there's sort of like, a, I almost see this as a, as a split between like us and theory, where there's sort of this idea that if we could get the cleanest price signals possible, things would allocate where they actually need to go and that policy solutions and stuff should be anchored around achieving that end. And that your response is something like, no one in industry actually wants that to happen. And in fact, it's incredibly hard to stop them from pursuing what they want. So all you can have is sort of actually a political contest for trying to align things in what you believe is the right direction and that there are going to be corruptions and complications no matter what. So you may as well get in the scrum. Yeah, I, cer- I would certainly say that as a practical matter. Even as a theoretical however, matter, however, I reject kind of the Hayekian notion of the market as this inherently superior information and communication system. The mm-hmm. thing that they, mm-hmm. you know, Hayek doesn't even, it's amazing to me that he put this whole theory together without really even thinking about this complication, but market signals, you know, they, there's not just some spontaneous order that they transmit. 
Market mm-hmm. signals also transmit the interventions of governments, including foreign governments. Mm-hmm. So if, if China comes in and subsidizes an industry, I don't know, let's say China subsidizes rare earth minerals processing, market signals are going to communicate the effects of those subsidies you know, to wherever China is trading with. So all of a sudden, returns on investment in those sectors in the United States go down, investment in those sectors go down, the industry you know, disappears or doesn't get started, China dominates the industry. So it's not, it's, you know, the idea that these market signals are sort of totally innocent or that the choice between government intervention and uh, happy, spontaneous order dictated by market information and all of that. That's that's a totally, you know, at best, that's a theoretical fantasy. Uh, mm-hmm. In practice, there's no such thing as a, as a world where there aren't government interventions and signals in the market. And you're often, you know, in the case of kind of international trade, what sort of pure deference to market price signals means is you're actually just letting foreign governments pick winners and losers. Um, mm-hmm. And in, if you want to shift it to the sort of ESG world, it, you know, markets are at this point, they're not really even state or government directives that are, you know, determining ESG. Markets are purely reflecting various private actor decision making around ESG. So there, there's no there's no sort of state of purity. And the only question is, you know, are you going to have a strategy of your own or simply become the mirror of others? Right, right. Okay. So let me ask you this. What you've already sort of hinted at it a little bit about like what an appropriate response would be. Are there, is there anybody that's moving in that direction? And if so, what are they doing? And sort of what do you think could be done better? There are a couple of funds. There's the one public one is called Amber Wave. Um, mm-hmm. you, can, you can find it on the internet. And they have a thing called JSG job security growth that includes a lot of things about you know does the company promote internally in its workforce how long do people stay at the company various indicators around national security elements how much business are they doing with china that sort of thing and you can you can go on down the list i mean there's no reason there can't be a sort of family friendliness component to this uh mm-hmm. You could even you could even do one if you wanted around like censorship of of other political views or geographic diversity. Is the company clustered in a couple superstar cities or do they have operations you know more broadly scattered? Uh, I think a lot of work needs to be done to actually come up with alternative criteria and risk factors you know that take into account essentially conservative or right of center political concerns, and then you can build build funds around that. And that, that would also include, you know, energy security, price stability, that sort of thing. And, you know, markets basically work if you have an alternative to invest in. So if you don't like one thing, you can go buy something else. That's, that's how the market, you know, imposes accountability and works. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what conservatives are kind of doing now is they're sort of saying, we don't, we don't like, we don't like this thing, but instead of going out and do, you know, creating their own thing, um, they're sort of complaining that government's allowing it or something. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think creating new funds, you could also go kind of local impact, state and regional investments that, you know, people who are not politically left can actually invest in. And then it'll be interesting to see, I think, you know, which of those frameworks would actually get more capital. Yeah. Certainly like the rising, the rise of Texas and Florida 
and a number of these states' economies suggest that I think these these concerns would not would not really struggle to attract capital, and many of them, you know, yeah. are are not narrowly partisan. Many of them would find support among you know left of center as well. Yeah, I think that's true too. I think that uh, I mean I broadly agree that there just needs to be more of a political fight in all sorts of venues about these things because I don't think any sort of policy or economic sanity is going to be achieved otherwise, especially when sort of the institutions and organizations that are playing in the big leagues here are, you know, heavily funded and highly influential. For instance, the gas stoves thing that happened. And then it, you know, the guy from the Rocky Mountain Institute comes out and says, actually, my paper doesn't cite a causal link between child asthma and this. But, you know, the Rocky Mountain Institute has a relationship with like Chinese banking and Sierra Club and all these groups have their own relationship with China, which dominates all of these you know, rare earth industries and stuff like that. And they have a ton of financial support in country as well, too. So I think the idea that neutrality will be achieved in any domain of this is to sort of misunderstand what your opponent is actually up to and what they're capable of. Yeah. And in the the case of ESG, you're not even on the on the right ground because there are, you know, as a rule, I, you can find some fringe cases, and it's arguably become as it's become more politicized in recent years. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. But mm-hmm. as a rule, ESG doesn't claim to violate shareholder primacy, and and it, it really doesn't. Yeah, yeah. So it you you know it's sort of that line of attack is sort of like we we wanted shareholder primacy for me, but not for thee. And it's a lot of people that I think just didn't think you know shareholder shareholder primacy could ever be used in different ways than they thought. It's sort of, it's a very common thing, as I say in the piece on conservatives are always trying to hide behind kind of liberal neutrality and proceduralism. Mm -hmm. And then they're subsequently shocked when it turns out that this liberal neutrality and proceduralism doesn't support the ends they thought it did. And this is another, another case of that, where I think a lot of, you know, when they said shareholder primacy, they thought that could only mean Milton Friedman and Reaganism and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it actually turns out that shareholder primacy is just as compatible. You know, it can give rise to ESG just as much as it can give rise to, you know, Gordon Gecko or his real life equivalents. Right, right. Well, no, this is great. This is really helpful. Let's help bring some clarity on this. People can check the article in the show notes. Before I let you go, Julius, let me ask you a couple of brief questions. First of all, what are you reading right now? (laughs) I am actually reading a book on the Defense Department involvement in the early Silicon Valley. I'm actually looking up the, it's called America Inc., um, mm. and by, by Linda Weiss. And it's a really, it's pretty academic. It's pretty dry, but it, it goes, goes through a lot of detail on kind of the early Silicon Valley and, and how, how the defense department and other parts of the national security apparatus were, were really involved in funding a lot of the early developments of that. As you, as you know, I'm a main focus in American affairs is, is around industrial policy and mm-hmm. innovation policy. And we're, we're constantly trying to find, you know, kind of the, the right way to do that while certainly not blind to concerns around unintended consequences. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the interesting thing about the industrial policy debate is that, you know, critics are sort of always out there saying everything always fails all the time while the proponents are sort of like, well, it sometimes works and you have to figure out when it works and when it doesn't and how to design mm-hmm. this effectively. So I've been, I've been kind of reading, reading that study. Looking for and, the secret yeah. sauce. Yeah. Well, just, just trying to see some case studies. 
Sure, sure. And then so and then this is the the sort of last question here. Anything you want to plug? Obviously, American Affairs, everyone should subscribe. And again, that'll be in the show notes. But anything else? Yeah, I've got a I've I've been writing a lot recently. So I have a review coming out at some point in the Claremont Review of Books on Brad DeLong's new book and Gary Gersel's new book mm-hmm. on neoliberalism. I think that'll be out in their next issue. I also wrote a review of a new a new book on kind of the presenting the libertarian side of things for the American conservative. I think that'll be out in their next issue. And mm-hmm. at some point I have a piece coming out in a publication called Philanthropy Today, sort of on the, the agonies and confusions of conservative philanthropy. All right, great. So people can find you on Twitter. That's where I know you put. If you must, your, if you <laughs> must, if you have to. But that's that's how I find out when you publish something new, unless you directly email it to me. And so people can go there. I want to thank you again for coming on. This was great. And everybody else out there, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.